Just prior to Christmas 1939, both George and Frank Timberlake were required by government proclamation to register for active service. Frank left home very quickly after that and was posted to the Royal Air Force. George, who was a little older, joined the army a few weeks later. The departure of both sons of the house caused quite a difference in the general atmosphere, as well as the routine of the home. Most noticeably, Mrs. Timberlake became rather moody, which wasn't perhaps surprising. It also affected the allocation of chores. With the number of people living in the home reduced, some of my household chores were made easier. However, I did become responsible for some of those previously done by the brothers. That the brothers had been called up, brought home to me the serious ramifications of being at war, more than anything else had up to that point. Not that I can claim to having had any deeply felt emotions about the matter but, I was able to empathize with the obvious maternal distress of Mrs. Timberlake. Certainly, the evenings were bleaker with the sons away. While they were there, we often played board games or card games, to wall away the long dark evenings. A short distance away and up the road, at number 85, there lived Mr. and Mrs. Stanley, Stan Mendy. Mrs. Mendy, Gladys, was Mrs. Timberlake's daughter. I had met this kind and pleasant couple almost as soon as I arrived, because they often visited the house at number 75. With the departure of her brothers into the services, Gladys and her husband spent more time providing company for Mrs. Timberlake. This was to prove favorable and very beneficial to me, in the near future. During the last months of 1939, I remember playing with a few toy soldiers, a very rudimentary small wooden fort and a couple of small aeroplanes. I believe one toy was a model of a Hamden bomber and the other was, I think, a skua. Both of course were warplanes and were made, like the soldiers, of lead. I also had a couple of books but, I can recall no other toys that I owned at that time in High Wycombe. The hard economic times of the 1930s affected toys, just as it did everything else for the consumer markets. The war merely exacerbated the bad situation, which was already prevailing for many, by actually removing goods from the shelves. Money was no longer the problem. Now, with employment soaring and few not fully employed, there was plenty of money, but nothing much to spend it on, except essentials like food and clothing. Very soon, of course, the whole economy was being geared up to strictly controlled and regulated wartime requirements. Production of anything unessential to the war effort, as decided by the fast burgeoning bureaucracy, was halted. Supplies of pre-war toys dwindled to naught and only a few shoddy toys could be found in the shops. Mostly, these were constructed from wood or, in the case of dolls etc., cloth. Wood was a common medium and, often, quite excellent toys resulted. We may have benefited, from the fact that High Wycombe was a major manufacturer of furniture and wooden items generally. The surrounding beech woods, which covered so many of the hills round the town, had been cut for the sawmills for more than a century. Heaven knows, what war equipment and other paraphernalia were manufactured in the numerous furniture workshops, sheds and yards. Although not even thought of at the time, I wouldn't be surprised if the wood-built mosquito aircraft didn't owe its being to the skilled craftsmen of High Wycombe. After 1943 the mosquito was to be, arguably, the most successful aircraft built during World War II. Toys, of many kinds and quality, increased in direct relation to the slowly improving and favorable state of the war. Finally, of course, manufactured toys again became more plentiful. Any toy with a clockwork mechanism, was the height of toys' technological progress. Model road vehicles, model train sets and even a few boats, in particular, had a large spring which required winding with a key, for the item to be operated. Toys powered by batteries, although already invented and known about of course, were to all intents and purposes non-existent until after the war's end. Toys for ordinary children were, very often, simple affairs. These and these toys, 
usually survived for a long time, mainly because of the respect many owners had for them which, in turn, was due to the shortage of such things. On the streets, there was the almost constant sound of people whistling. Patriotic songs were popular, but not to the exclusion of other well-liked tunes. Whistling was a means of providing music pre-war, as well as during the war years. During the war, delivery boys, post office messengers, schoolboys and manual workers in the thousands, all spent much of the day whistling. In fact, a few whistlers made a living on the variety stage, until universal and ubiquitous music was available via radio sets. At the war's commencement, most radios were cumbersome while many were contained in large pieces of furniture. By the war's end, radios had become smaller and, as a result, much more widespread in use. However, a truly portable radio had to wait for the invention of the transistor, long after the war had finished. The two most popular tunes of the early war years were We're Going to Hang Out the Washing on the Siegfried Line, a reference to the German fortifications on their border with France, and Roll Out the Barrel. I can recall whistling these tunes, likely, well off-key. I wasn't too young, however, to fully appreciate the intense embarrassment that was felt by many people, some few months later. This was when, without apparent effort, the Germans moved forward from an undisturbed Siegfried line, defeated the French and threw the defeated British expeditionary force out of Europe. Clearly no washing was going to be hung out on the Siegfried line. Roll out the barrel, remained a popular tune, throughout the war. Any tune that became popular tended to survive. Unlike much modern music, which climbs the charts with alacrity and then fades quickly from the scene, many tunes of the war years were performed frequently and throughout the war. Of course, nowhere near so many tunes were written then but many, of those that were written could be termed sentimental, nostalgic or patriotic, when sentimentality, nostalgia and patriotism were, very much, in vogue. Being a small boy, in 1939, I was a de facto signatory of the schoolboys' charter. This charter decrees that all schoolboys must pledge allegiance to one, or other, of an extensive, and never-ending, list of things. This list contained, amongst many other things, railway companies, branches of the armed services, football clubs, cricket teams, sports personalities, brass bands and, of course, Oxford or Cambridge, as well as types of aircraft, cars, buses etc. in keeping with the long tradition my choices had been made, and vociferously defended. No schoolboy ever altered his announced allegiance. My loyalties, which exist to this very day, meant I was a naval man and nothing would sway me from my tremendous pride in the Royal Navy and anything that touched upon it. I supported Blackburn Rovers Football Club, Cambridge in the Boat Race and the Yorkshire Cricket Club. Len Hutton, a famous and successful batsman for Yorkshire, was my idol. I preferred the Hurricane fighter plane to the Spitfire and I thought Rover motor cars were the finest built. Finally, I must have been almost a lone supporter, of the Southern Railway. Present-day schoolboys will identify with this strong tradition and will understand the importance of it. Civilization will surely crumble if schoolboys fail to choose, and state, their avowed preferences. My love of all naval things was probably inspired, unwittingly, by my grandfather. This passion, for it was a passion, remained and I eventually joined the senior service, albeit after peace had returned. Strange and boastful, indeed braggadocio, as it might sound, it was a source of great vexation, that the war finished before I could serve my country. This heartfelt emotion was experienced in common with 99% of all the boys, in and around my age group, that I knew. Such patriotism is hard to understand, or to justify, these days. Indeed it is hard to understand it, myself. It is, nevertheless, sincerely true. Pride in one's country seems a very old-fashioned thing today. I sometimes wonder if, like so much that was good, patriotism isn't something that didn't survive the Second World War. 
Many bad things changed for the better, as a direct result of the war. Probably, some good things were lost, too. It crosses my mind to wonder if my great enthusiasm, to fight for my country, would have been as great if my country's fortunes had not been as favorable as they were, when it was nearing time for me to enlist. I'd like to think it would have been. It could well have been, for fervor and patriotism were still evident among the youth of Nazi Germany toward the end of the war. In this, if nothing else, we weren't so very different. I mention the Navy particularly because, while most of the other members of the fighting services were not actually engaged in any fighting at this time, this wasn't the case at sea. On the seas, from the first days of the war, much was happening. People heard some details about the war at sea from the BBC, mainly. Newspapers, while popular in 1939, were not purchased in the numbers they would be later in the war and, for many years after that. The reasons were numerous. Many people couldn't afford the price, small as it might seem today. The ability to read was not, entirely, universal. The lives of ordinary working people, were almost fully occupied. There just wasn't any spare time, to sit and read a newspaper. Even without the war, people were working 8, 10 or 12 hours a day, 6 and sometimes 7 days a week. Even office people and bank clerks worked 5 and a half days, their weekends starting at around 1 p.m. on Saturday. A great absence of labor-saving devices meant that there were frequent chores to be done in the house and garden, which all took time. It was a very different time, from today. Two aspects of life in Britain, pre-war and during the war, involved a large number of shops. First, many shops, particularly the smaller ones, which predominated of course, closed for the lunch hour. This, customarily, was from noon to 1 p.m. The second aspect involved the usual half-day closing. With most shops and stores being open all day Saturday, some closed at 1 p.m. on, usually, either Wednesday or Thursday. Sunday opening was, I am certain never considered. Along with many other customs and practices, the war caused many changes to be made to shops and shopping throughout Britain. It is, though, fair to say that most survived, in some form, throughout the war years. Returning to the BBC news broadcasts. Bad news might have been delayed slightly, but it was never deliberately distorted. The population got used to listening to, and talking about, the BBC news. This aspect of life became routine, for just about the entire population of the land. Although severely hindered by officialdom, in its early attempts, the BBC served the country well throughout the war. Radio, in those days, was not the all-pervading force it would soon become. The BBC only started broadcasting in 1922. This fact is, often, completely overlooked. In 1939, only about 70% of households contained a radio receiver, or wireless set, as they were known in Britain. Put another way, there was only one wireless set for every 5.4 people. Plus at that time, it cost 10 slash, 50p, to purchase an annual wireless license to receive transmissions. At first, people remained permanently tuned to receive news. Clearly, this was unpractical. After some tinkering, set times were decided upon by the BBC hierarchy. This meant that news bulletins were broadcast at 7am, 8am, 1pm, 6pm, 9pm, and midnight. The bulletins, before too long, became highly respected and trusted. It has been stated that 50% of the population listened to the 9pm news bulletins. Early on, before every home had a radio, neighbors would gather to listen to the news in the home of a person who did own one. Mrs. Timberlake possessed an accumulator wireless, which served to provide information for one such group, and me. The BBC, once it had ridded itself of bureaucratic controls, soon became relied upon as a trusted purveyor of news. Most people wouldn't miss the early morning and the late evening news broadcasts. The 9pm news, 
in particular, was sacrosanct. It is impossible, to overstress the importance people attach to this particular broadcast. In today's world, when news has been trivialized and reduced to little more than tittle-tattle and a recitation of various accidents at home and abroad, it is difficult to explain what real news is all about. When the listener's own life, or the life of a close loved one, is directly involved, news is critical. When the fate of the country, itself, hinges on what happened during the previous 24 hours, news is critical. The BBC was reliable. When bureaucracy relented and the petty restrictions, placed upon the corporation to satisfy jealous newspaper proprietors were lifted, the BBC came into its own. It was, finally, allowed a great deal of freedom and became the criterion by which any other unbiased, fearless and truthful broadcasting would be judged. So it remained, until long after the war was over. Whether this is so today, is a moot point. Initially, it is true, bad news was occasionally delayed until it could be mixed with better news, but bad news was not avoided. After the first few months the BBC news was truthful, accurate and, importantly, contemporaneous. If mistakes were made, it was usually due to errors in the information given to the BBC. People, with justification, came to trust the BBC news. No one, who heard the chilling and often, especially, early on, in the war, devastatingly unpropitious news, can doubt that the BBC tried to be honest and objective, no matter what befell the nation. No one, least of all I, failed to be aware of the innate integrity of the BBC news broadcasts. It is, perhaps, strange to think that officialdom within the bureaucracy considered the public not to be capable of dealing with the unpalatable truths involved with reporting more news. Censorship was considered, and seriously debated. Even Winston Churchill, later to use the BBC to favorable and telling effect on the populace, distrusted the corporation greatly, initially. Remembering the war news and the impact and effect it had on people, I can vouch that people, generally, prefer to trust what they hear, good or bad, than be in doubt as to its veracity. The public, as a whole, deplores having its intelligence insulted and is quite adept at knowing when this is being done. German Propaganda Broadcasts by a man named Joyce or Lord Ha Ha Dash, as he was known in Britain, demonstrate this last point. British people, by the thousands, listened to this man's daily utterances and laughed. His voice was mimicked, unmercifully. His dire predictions and assertions of truth were disbelieved and ridiculed. The population of Britain wasn't stupid. Perhaps the fact, that listening to the German broadcasts wasn't made illegal, helped convince the population of their mendacity. Conversely, it is worthwhile remembering that, the Nazis made listening to the BBC a serious offense. Gradually, radio music became extremely popular, and the morale-boosting influence of music was harnessed to the war effort. Music while you work became normal in the factories and workshops of Britain. Martial music blared out upon arrival at Waterloo Station, and other places. It did tend to give one a lift, particularly during hard or worrisome times. All television broadcasts, few as they were, were halted at the outbreak of the war. Indeed, all recreational activities from football matches to theatre and cinema shows were stopped for a while, until the government came to its senses and realised the morale-boosting effect of such entertainments. Slowly, entertainment returned to the land. Football, but in nothing like its pre-war organised state, was finally played again. It was, however, regional in structure and played very often by many unknowns. Many entertainers and sports personalities, of the time, enlisted for service in the armed forces. This always made news and was good for propaganda purposes. Small boys like me were much impressed, when our heroes, football, cricket, rugby, or whatever their sport, joined up. Over time, many aspects of daily life slowly returned. Unfortunately many others, 
once considered normal and part of the fabric of living, ceased for the duration, if not permanently. In the early months of the war, life for me in High Wycombe was serene and untroubled. With no experience of war, I was incapable of understanding, properly, the darker aspects of it. I knew my mother and Gran were, somehow, in danger of being bombed, but couldn't grasp the full terrifying import of such a thing. I think we all have a self-preservation instinct that tells us, most convincingly, that bad things are not going to happen to us, or those we love. At times, such as war, these firm and resolute beliefs enable us to carry on and survive. To seriously doubt, the opposite eventuality, is surely tantamount to surrendering one's will to survive. I saw Frank and George Timberlake's call up, as a slightly dangerous adventure, for the two of them. I didn't consider it being, some dire tragedy. This, in spite of sincere empathy for their mother, to which I have already alluded. As a callow youth, ignorant of so much of life, I had blind faith in the ability of the country to survive. That people, I loved, could somehow be seriously harmed was unthinkable, and, therefore, dismissed from my mind. It might be easy to think of this as peculiar. I could only speak as I found and I know I was not alone among my age group. Of course, this all changed before too many months had passed. Before long, the full dangers were recognized, but, still, nothing bad was going to befall those I loved, or me. I came from poor and humble folk, so food, and many of the other, shortages weren't really noticed. The war must have been particularly unpleasant, for people with rich tastes and habits that included exotic foods and foreign travel. For people used to plenty, of everything, used to being able to purchase whatever they chose, used to going to theaters and banquets and, generally, living the life of the wealthy, the war must have been a harrowing experience, beyond the obvious. For humble folk, many of the war's privations were not so readily evident. That there was no coal, for the fire, was something we knew about from much bitter experience. That we couldn't drive our motor cars was hardly a loss, for we didn't have access to a motor car. The fact we couldn't travel, only reminded us of the number of places we had never visited, some not far from our homes. The fact, that many foods were no longer available, didn't worry us. Many of us might never have seen the food, nor might we have any idea of what it looked like. That the theaters, the cinemas, the museums, the art galleries and many sporting events were closed, or cancelled, wouldn't alter our lifestyles in the slightest. Of course bombing and shelling, and other such-like aggression, affected all those involved similarly. And affect large numbers it would, but later. There was no real bombing or shelling in High Wycombe, or, indeed, anywhere else in Britain at his time. A few sporadic sorties by enemy aircraft and an odd bomb here and there was reported, but hardly anyone in the British Isles was truly aware a war was being waged. News from Poland was horrendous, of course, but nobody could see how the gallant country could be helped. At home, the only battles were taking place at sea, with disastrous results for the British. By the end of December, nearly 700,000 tons of merchant shipping had been lost with great loss of life. In September, the aircraft carrier HMS Courageous was also sunk. To compound the Royal Navy's woes, they were embarrassed to lose the battleship HMS Royal Oak, sunk in the harbour at Scapa Flow by a U-boat in a daring and exemplary attack in October. I recall the horror I felt, when this news was released. It wasn't until late November the population, at last, had something positive to cheer about. I remember the feeling, and the subsequent frequent retelling of the story, so vividly. Although the entire nation justifiably felt a deep and tremendous pride, it was, sadly, another defeat and the loss of a gallant ship and crew. The facts bear retelling, here. An armed merchantman, the Rawalpindi, discovered the German battleship Scharnhorst and Nice now about to maraud in the rich hunting grounds of the Atlantic Ocean. Instead of running away, 
the master of the Rawalpindi attacked the battleship Scharnhorst, and was, quickly, blown out of the water. The huge benefit of this brave action was that the two German battleships, their positions now known, were forced to return to harbour rather than continue their mission. This would, undoubtedly, have ensured their facing the retribution of the Royal Navy. If these two German raiders had reached the Atlantic, undetected, the havoc they could have wreaked, upon unarmed merchant ships, would have been awesome. In the event, neither of these ships afterwards played any significant part in the war. The country had hardly got over the bitter-slash-sweet memory of the Raul Pindi, when word was released about another German raider being loose upon, virtually unarmed, merchant ships plying the oceans. This was the battleship Admiral Groff C. The British people had waited nearly four months for a real victory. Any clear victory, however small, would have been welcome. In the event we were hardened, far beyond the basic worth of the feat, by news that was reported around December 20, 1939. After a brilliantly executed sea battle, and with honor about even, the Groff Spey had sought refuge in Montevideo Harbor in South America. Later, rather than again engage the Royal Naval ships, the Groff Spey had been scuttled. This newsworthy sea action, the refuge, the eventual sailing and final scuttling had been reported by the world's press, much, by eyewitness reports. The delight, in Britain, was unbounded. It did wonders for morale, at a very low ebb in the country's history. I read the reports and looked at the many photographs, repeatedly. It was, I discovered later, a much more intriguing story than was at first thought, or reported. Clandestine meetings and diplomatic chicanery, playing a telling part. This, however, was not widely known until after the war. Of all the war's many stirring incidents, the Battle of the River Plate is the one I remember with the most clarity. I have followed the intriguing story, in detail, ever since the days it happened. Today, I know the full story as though I was personally engaged in all the happenings. The war, war news, and the various forces fighting the war all became the grist for the schoolboy's mind. In the absence of almost all professional organized sport, the war took over as a focal point of a boy's life. The war became an enthralling hobby. A very keenly followed hobby. Instead of following sports scores, batting and bowling averages, favorite players, league tables and individual teams' positions in them, we boys all studied the various combatants and their vast, constantly changing, arsenals of weapons. We could quote all sorts of details and particulars, from specifications to plans. Although, obviously, we couldn't fly planes, drive tanks, fight in ships or plan battles, we studied those that did and the results avidly, throughout the war. There was, in truth, little else to do. I have no idea who introduced me to the pastime but, about this time in late in 1939, I was introduced to train spotting. About a quarter mile north of my new home, ran a busy railway line. Trains of both the London and Northeastern Railway and the Great Western Railway used this track which served the Midlands and, in the case of the GWR, Birkenhead. The trains originated at, either, Paddington or Marylebone in London. There was a convenient, local-level crossing which served as an excellent place to congregate, with my friends, of an evening. No obvious signs of the country's war effort were noticeable on the stretch of railway, at that time. Occasionally, the sight of a locomotive belonging to a rival company was seen hauling a goods train. This showed a sharing policy which was uncommon pre-war. Later and gradually increasing in frequency, ever more tangible evidence of warfare was readily seen. Military vehicles, tanks, personnel and equipment slowly mounted in volume until, just prior to day in 1945, train after train carrying this military materiel moved, in seemingly endless procession, along the country's many railway tracks. But not in those early days. It must be understood that, in those days, entertainment was not provided. 
The bulk of entertainment was what one could do, make, play or devise oneself. Paper and pencil games, often hand-drawn by the participants, were the computer games of today. Model-making, ships, planes, etc., or playing a musical instrument, took the place of today's television. Ludo, snakes and ladders were board games and very popular entertainment when the whole family could gather. Another board game was, of course, Monopoly. This game had been big before the war. The board games were owned and controlled by the grown-ups who, likely, had been given them as Christmas presents. Few children would have been owners, of such a thing, then. Group games with other children, besides the usual football, cricket, catch etc., occupied much time also. Games such as British Bulldog, Hide and Seek and He, were popular. Marbles, Conkers, and Five Stones, were played regularly, each in its own season. British Bulldog was a game requiring two sides of similar numbers. One side would line up, in a file, facing a wall. This side would bend over at the waist, each boy, it was a boy's game, with his head tucked under the rear end of the boy in front of him and with his arms grasping the boy's waist, firmly. This resulted in a crocodile, with its head at the wall. The lead boy, of course, pressed his hands and arms against the wall. An opposing team would line up and jump onto the backs of the boys in the file, in turn, similar, in some respects, to leapfrog, yet another game. The object of the game was to see whether a crush of boys could break the back of the crocodile. Obviously, they could best achieve the object, if the boys all landed on one small section of the file of boys. It might sound, and might have been, silly, but doing it was better than standing around wondering what to do, something children of that era never had to do. He was a simple game, consisting of a designated person running after and tagging any other of the group. The person so tagged, then became he and chased someone else. Again, maybe a silly game, but a real-time passer and excellent exercise. Conkers is a typical British game. A ripe fruit of the horse chestnut tree is strung on a piece of string. Two children, with their conker so strung, take turns to strike their opponent's conker. The winner is the person whose conker remains attached to its string, when the other conker has been smashed and detached. Many are the ruses and dishonest attempts to harden a particular conker. In truth, very few conkers survived more than one or two battles dash although children commonly made claims, of winning a dozen or more battles. Marbles, is a well-known game, but it was adapted by British children to include the mode by which one child would throw his slasher marble along the roadside gutter. An opponent, would then throw his slasher marble along the gutter in an attempt to strike their opponent's marble. If struck, the striker takes possession of the person's marble which was struck. Strategy precludes hurling one's marble too far, as it might become lost, hardly an advantage. This mode of playing might sound, both, unlikely and unreasonable, but, the game works successfully. It was, particularly, suitable as a time passer en route to school, Sunday school, or going to a mutual friend's house, and at other times. Five stones involved good hand-slash-eye coordination and a dexterity of hand and fingers. Children played with five small pebbles or, if one were particularly fortunate, with five small cubes of wood, or other solid material. The cubes were, most usually, about the size of sugar lumps. It is not my wish to convey the belief that we were angels in my days as a young schoolboy in High Wycombe. With the front doors of many homes next to the street, I can recall tying door knockers together, with a length of string, and then rapping on one door. Watching the occupants come to their doors, in answer to the knocking, was always good for a laugh. We were, after all, only kids. Occasionally, we went into undertakers and inquired about empty boxes. Our eight morticians often chased us out of their establishments. Cardboard boxes, I have to explain, were used commonly and in very large numbers.
Few, if any, forklift vehicles existed then and, with horse-drawn transport being common, most goods for delivery were packed in cardboard boxes of manageable size. Obviously they eventually required disposal, for a variety of reasons, and were very plentiful. Most shopkeepers were only too pleased to get rid of them, for the asking. At one place, we children were particularly respectful, if only for an ulterior motive. This was at the grocery shops. My chums and I knew of a grocery shop on Green Street, in High Wycombe. The layout, of this small establishment, I can still remember. Biscuits at that time, unlike a little later in the war, were still readily available and were not packaged as they are today. They came in square tins, approximately one foot cubed. The tins had transparent tops, which enabled the grocers to display the type of biscuit, while making it unnecessary to open the tin just to see what it contained. Obviously, this method of packaging resulted in broken biscuits galore. If they were not too badly broken, they were sometimes sold off cheaply. Some, however, were beyond selling and we knew that the grocer on Green Street would give them to young children. We were not too proud to ask for them. Before arriving in High Wycombe, I had not enjoyed the frequent company of a group of friends away from school, or be out and about without parental presence, or, when at boarding school, teachers. Without fear of contradiction, I can say I had a good time. I enjoyed my relative freedom and, importantly, without behaving in a badly mischievous or criminal manner. I was, most certainly, no angel at this stage of the war. Neither was I really unruly nor, worse than anything for a child to be, at the time, rude and disrespectful of my elders. I claim no great credit for this. The lessons, my schools and my parents had taught me, had obviously sunk in. I can visualize the walk to school each day, as though it happened yesterday. A group of us would meet up, at the corner, and head off quite happily. On the way, there was always marbles to play or, in the season, Conkers dash although Conkers slowed us too much for it to be very popular walking to school. Often, we would ask grown-ups for fag cards, which was a colloquialism for cigarette card. Pre-war, most schoolboys collected cigarette cards. This hobby persisted into the early months of the war, before the cards became a victim of the paper shortage and the companies stopped their printing. Until this happened, many tobacco companies included a card with a packet of cigarettes. Collecting these, usually very handsome, sets of up to 50 cards was possible, with the right contacts. The tobacco companies devoted the sets to many things, but footballers, cricketers, flowers, trees, aircraft, cars, ships, and regimental cap badges, are some that spring readily to mind. Relatives were, of course, the best contact, but complete strangers could, often, be cajoled into providing these cards. I had a sizable collection of cards. All neatly stuck into albums. The various tobacco companies supplied the albums, I think, free of charge. Horse-drawn delivery vehicles would use the streets we took, on our journey to school. These delivery vehicles would include those conveying milk, bread, coal or green grocery. Horse-drawn transport was very common, in 1939. So common that just as, today, vehicles are commonly heard passing by, in those days it was the sound of horses clipping along the streets, that was most usually heard. The wheels of the many carts and traps could, also, commonly be heard as they passed along the asphalt-covered streets. The understandable but highly disingenuous practice, by which sellers agreed among themselves which territories to control, had not at the time been foisted upon the public. Open competition still existed in two, or occasionally three, bakers, for example, might ply the same routes with distinctive carts. Dust carts were horse-drawn. The dustmen hardly needed to direct the two horses on their journey. All the horses knew it, as well as their human companions. Similarly, of course, the bakers and the milkmen often let their horses have their head. 
breweries all used heavy cart horses for their deliveries. These impressive animals, commonly, were seen in magnificent teams of four. They made a stirring sight. Many bicycles were always evident, on the roads in 1939. I recall that, for a short while at the beginning of the war, the Walls Ice Cream Company continued selling their ice cream from a tricycle. These well-known, and easily recognized, tricycles were a huge source of pleasure, for us children, ever hopeful of a treat. Triangular-shaped ice lollies, I think they were called snow fruits, cost 2d, 1p or 1 slash 120th of a pound. These lollies were made of water juice, no doubt synthetic, that was frozen. On the few occasions I was lucky enough to have one, I enjoyed it. Soon, these ice lollies, like real ice cream, became totally unobtainable, for many years. Young and old, alike, rode bicycles. Many men used a cycle, as a means to get to and from work. Vehicles used by the military, or by the many emergency services, continued to be seen frequently. Private cars got scarcer and scarcer, as the war progressed, but some commercial motor vehicles existed, throughout. Mainly, the motor vehicles still running, were buses or business vehicles of some sort. Most were used for delivery purposes, but some were removal vans. Regulations, and a desire for survival by the various companies involved, saw many firms pool their vehicle fleets. Many vehicles could, then, be laid up to everyone's advantage. The participating companies would, then, share the remaining vehicles, so that routes were not duplicated. Central warehousing, helped to facilitate this. Pooling made sense, for many reasons. Repairs were costly and, often, qualified mechanics were difficult to find. Fuel was in short supply, even for essential business. Drivers, too, became scarce, with many being called up. One shouldn't imagine, that motor vehicles were plentiful. They were far from numerous and absolutely nothing to compare with the state of affairs today. A small point that, perhaps, bears some thought, is that in 1939 the police walked around their beat. I can't recall ever seeing a police car. No doubt supervisors had them, but they were not used as patrol vehicles. Vans, called Black Marie as I recall, were in use to convey prisoners to the police station or to jail. On this subject, it has to be remembered that there were no portable radios dash for the police or any other emergency service. This state of affairs lasted until well after the war was over. The military used radio, but this was possible only because of the military's ability to transport the very bulky equipment. I remember lorries, of one type, that used the road we took to and from school. This may be because we hitched rides, without the driver's knowledge. These were the vehicles conveying huge tree trunks, to the furniture factories in the area. We would climb aboard the huge trunks or, if the lorry was unladen, the back of the mainframe. Again, compared to today's vehicles, these lorries were puny. They were capable only of hauling one, or two, large trunks and, then, only slowly. They were very different from the behemoths that run on the roads today. High Wycombe was a prosperous and renowned manufacturing town, specializing in household furniture. The beech trees, common and plentiful in the Chiltern Hills, were a ready source of lumber. As I said, we used these log carriers to gain a ride. It was, however, hardly worth the effort, for the vehicles moved only slightly faster than we could achieve by walking. One childhood activity then that changed not at all from year to year in wartime or peacetime, has long been impossible. With the daily presence of so many horse-drawn vehicles, copious amounts of horse dung were distributed on the streets. This dung was renowned for being beneficial for plants, generally, and for roses, in particular. Lads, such as me, went out with bucket and shovel to collect this manna. Often, it was worth a few coppers. Considering the plentiful source, this constituted rich pickings. 
In relation to this, the scarcity of vehicular traffic can, perhaps, be estimated by the fact I recall no road accident that was attributed to this very common occupation. Neither, interestingly, was the practice ever considered unsafe. Early in 1940, the authorities constructed brick-built shelters along some roads in High Wycombe and, of course, elsewhere. These shelters were, obviously, the brainchild of some bureaucrat, for they were no safer than the houses they were often built within 10 feet of. Probably, the shelters were less safe. The structures, I recall clearly, were approximately 8 feet wide by 25 feet long by 8 feet high. They had no doors, but had an opening at each end by which entry could be gained. Wooden benches, inside, lined the long walls. Of course, these abominations soon became dark, foul-smelling and dank. Drunks, prostitutes, both, amateur and professional, and their customers, and those caught short, were the only people I knew to use them. Most people couldn't abide the putrid smell of the places, let alone consider entering one. Again, it is another indication of the lack of traffic, when one knows that these monstrous buildings took up half the street. No complaint or inconvenience followed, though the shelters remained for years. Such shelters in heavily traveled areas, where many people might wish to shelter in a hurry, would be justified. However, in residential streets, there wasn't the need. No one would be foolish enough, to leave a house to shelter in one of these things. The few passers-by would be welcome, in any house, in times of danger. Until February 1940 and the Altmark Affair, life in Britain had very much settled down. My naivety prevented me from thinking too deeply about the truly grave consequences of defeat, in connection with the struggle in which we had found we were engaged. In this, I was far from alone. The absence of any personal involvement, prevented any feeling of imminent danger. That we heard so little, of people who had been any more than badly inconvenienced, meant we didn't think the war was too bad, at that stage. We were to curse, our inability to see ahead. Many facilities, that had ceased immediately war was declared, slowly began to reappear, or open up, again. Public transport carried on, often with women replacing the younger men. All the young men were soon found to be missing, from our society. This womanization of the workforce started with a small trickle but, with gathering momentum, it was soon rushing a veritable torrent of women into every facet of our lives. There wasn't a job they were not engaged in, come the end of the war. Importantly and, to some, amazingly, apart from jobs requiring great strength, there was not a job in which women didn't equal the output of a man. Cinemas and theaters started reopening. Things, such as church fates, began being organized again. In those early days, the days of the phony ver, coal supplies, gas and, for those that had it, electricity, seemed hardly to be affected. Although strict regulations, covering the use of these things, were drawn up early in the war. A form of rationing was envisaged, indeed, most of the bad things we civilians had been warned to expect, immediately the war started, failed to materialize. It was true that we had received harrowing news, involving a handful of our compatriots. We were being told, constantly, about the perilous situation on the high seas and we grieved, and grieved sincerely, for the seamen. We were fully aware that, on the oceans of the world, particularly the Atlantic, seamen were experiencing great danger. Far too many ships were being lost, due to enemy action. Nevertheless, it appeared that the bulk of the trouble was elsewhere and far away. Other people were fighting, dying and suffering. The war was only inconveniencing us, in Britain. We had been led to believe that we would be greatly, and directly, affected. Instead of this predicted mayhem, children were already beginning to return to their homes in the cities and towns. Some schools and businesses, along with their employees, were reported to have returned from evacuation, also. Perhaps it would all blow over, we thought. 
Little did we know. Shortly, things began to happen in Norway, of all places. We were in for many horrible surprises, before this war ended. 